Hello, and welcome to Pianotech Radio Hour, the weekly bridge to the future of the Pianotech community. I'm David Anderson. And I'm Ethan Janney. And we're here to ask great questions, and then we'll shut up and listen to some of the authorities, experts, and most outstanding personalities in our little world of pianos. So, put on your best set of headphones, and let's get started. All right, folks. Well, I think it's about time to get started. Uh, without further ado, uh, first off, we're going to have a little bit of a, a readout of, of how this uh, event is brought to you and uh, a little bio of our guest today. And Daniel, our fine friend over there in Brooklyn, New York, is going to take care of that for you. Piano Tech Radio Hour is being brought to you by the Piano Technicians Masterclasses, an online educational resource that offers you cutting edge instruction from piano industry masters without leaving your home. You can find out more at www.pianotechniciansmasterclass.com slash PTM 2020. And our guest today is Sally Phillips. Um, over the past 40 years, Sally Phillips has worked in virtually every aspect of the piano industry, service, retail, wholesale, and manufacturing. She has tuned and prepared pianos for, for recordings and concerts in such venues as Town Hall and NYC, Alice Holly Hall, the Kennedy Center, and for the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, the BBC Concert Orchestra, and the Vienna Philharmonic. She's a graduate um, in 1976 of the North Bennett Street School. She has published articles for Piano Buyer, the American Organist, and the PTG Journal. And Sally lives in Columbus, Georgia, dealing in Steinway and other fine pianos as Piano Perfect LLC. Yeah. So nice to have you here. And glad, glad you can make some time for us. I know you're super busy out there in, in Columbus, uh, uh, managing everything with the pandemic and, and uh, continuing on with the, all, all the things you're managing. I know you have a beautiful property over there with horses and everything. And uh, you, I know you got a lot on your plate. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sally, <clears throat> been a fan of your work for a long time. Um, really pushed when we started this to get, actually I pushed to have Ethan and Piano Technicians Masterclass reach out to you and try to get you on a, a class and then you were a slam dunk for this. So I'm so happy to have you. Well, thank it's rare, you. It's rare that we get, get to be in the room with somebody like Steve Brady or somebody like Sally Phillips that have just done more pianos than there's almost days in a 10 year period uh, on a very high level. So welcome, my friend, welcome. Thank you. Well, I'm gonna start out just a little bit. And so, so what we're gonna talk about today is sort of you know very, very overall arching global view of voicing and why we do what we do and why it works the way it, the way it works. And, and a lot of times it's very, in, very simplistically referred to as voicing up or voicing down, meaning getting brighter or more mellow. Um, sometimes it's mistakenly referred to as voicing down in volume and voicing up in volume. And those things are really dependent on a lot of other things. So what really gives the piano volume is the condition of the strings, the, the soundboard, the sustain, and of course the regulation. So you can't really regulate um, and make improvements 
and in voicing unless the piano is really set up in regulation first. So the regulation allows the piano to be played more softly and the voicing gives the range of dynamics more color. But when you're voicing down, the result should not be that you kill the hammers and the hammers are now soft, the piano is now softer in volume. The piano should be able to play the piano at a softer volume or at a louder volume, but not it. it's not gonna make the piano softer in, in and of itself. But so. one, time, one time Michael Freeman said to me, everybody wants almost everything the same except attack. You're just masking the high partials. So a low volume attack on the piano is warmer or the perception is warmer. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I do. I do think, and you, and and that's one of the reasons. Like when I when I um, did some work in Germany, one of the things that the Germans taught me um, well was to address all the issues at the strike point first. I mean, when I first got taught how to voice here in this country, they always talked about doing a lot of the low shoulder needling first, and the, and you sort of then went up to the top of the hammer from the bottom. They really addressed the filing, fitting, shaping, and the consistency at the straight point on a really soft blow first, because that That's in some right. cases can mask the issues that you have with the other por portions of the hammer. So if you can get that straightened out first, you're, you're better off. The other thing we're going to talk about is, and these are my terms that I admit, I think of, and I think sometimes with technicians, we work by ourselves a lot. We tend to think of, of a term that, that covers something that we think about and we see, seem to think that other people will understand immediately what we're talking about. And that's not really uh, the case, but in, and I like to try to put things in boxes. I mean, I'm sort of organized like that. And so I always think of voicing as um, uh, two different goals with a lot of variations in between. But one of them is sort of a homogeneous goal, which is more American in that the tone is very even from note to note, even from the bottom of the piano. So the whole piano is brighter or the whole piano is a little bit sweeter. And I, I think of in the European terms, um, they have really in historically clung to the voices in the piano being more orchestral. So in my mind, the orchestrally voiced piano is has a, a sort of a, a, an aggressive bass in the low part. As it gets through the tenor, it gets a little bit sweeter, a little bit rounder, rounder in that mid, a little bit of mid range, but it still has to have an attack sound. It still has to have articulation and then a bell like treble and a, and a really, really high um, you know, aggressive, um, bright sound. And wow. I, I, I had, I had the occasion to work with, there's a Hamburg Steinway and I'm going I'm to ask Ethan to play that just, just a minute of it is get, is all we're going to need to hear. This is a Hamburg Steinway that is in the United States that was heavily over lacquered by one, uh, by somebody who got to it and thought that it was not bright enough. 
And so I then the venue called me and said, oh, my gosh, you know, the piano is, is you know, we're not happy with it. Can you come and what can you do? And so I ended up flipping, taking the stack off, flipping it over so that the 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 tails of the of the hammers were sitting on the ground. And I took an entire quart of lacquer thinner and went over the whole thing and washed all the lacquer out that I could. And um, then I had to completely revoice. So this is very, in my mind, this is a very orchestrally voiced piano where I intentionally gave it a different tone in the different registers. But the trick for this and why it's so hard is that it has to gradually change. It can't be a dramatic change from one section to the other. It has to gradually change that voice as it goes up. So Ethan, play that, play just about a minute of that. Able to hear this? Let me know if you guys don't hear a little bit of applause up front. You hear that applause? So we, I had to completely reshape the hammer. Um, I did a lot of ironing over the strike point and then did very, very shallow needling because it had too much lacquer in it. And I successfully got a lot of it out. It was still way harder than the hammer that I really would prefer to be working with. And so it's, it's the techniques of doing low shoulder needling and all that stuff, it just gets thrown out of the window because there's almost nothing you can do to do that. So this was all careful fitting, um, you know, leveling strings, fitting the hammer to the string, getting it as clean as possible. And of course, when you fit carefully, um, your unisons are also better because when you, are, when you don't have the hammer fit carefully, then it throws those strings out of phase into motion and you will never get clean unisons unless those hammers are fitted really, really well. So that's an example of that. But I think part of what we want to talk about is, you know, why, why did the Europeans sort of cling to that kind of voice? And if you look back in music history, you look at the organ with all the voices and the harpsichord with all the different voices. Um, you know, their first take on a, on a keyboard instrument was as an orchestral substitute. 
So they were trying to create an instrument which could substitute for an orchestra. And, that, and so they wanted that real big variety of sound, which why you had all the lute stop and you had all the, the buff stops and all the stuff that you had with harpsichords and organs to change that timbre. That was a, a really interesting to, to them. In the United States, in the 1850s and 1860s, the United States really was so big and the factories had to ship so far away that they really resorted to more of an evenness in tone um, because they couldn't get as creative with the voicing then because it's gonna go on a creek and it's gonna, it's gonna ride on a train or it's gonna ride somewhere for hours and hours and days and days before it gets there, it's gonna go through humidity changes. They didn't have the ability to seal stuff up like we do when we bring in pianos from Europe. So it was no telling what it was gonna be when it got there. So they tended to, to aim toward a softer hammer, knowing that it was gonna brighten up, than to do what Erard and Pleyel and Gaveau and Broadwood did, which they wanted that clean, clear, crisp kind of sound that, that started out as that early Viennese piano with that, that Mozart kind of clarity. Um, and so they, they were clinging to that kind of technique. So let's go to the, the first recording that I have. And sadly, we don't have old recordings um, you know, of some of the really early pianos, but this one's from 1917. And you can really hear that this, this piano was really clinging to the, 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 the 19th century in tone. And in fact, it could have been a, a much older piano. We don't know how old this piano was when this recording was done. So go ahead and start that one. Give me one second. Could, could you see that when I brought it up? I I, uh, yeah, we could. Okay, cool. I just couldn't tell. Let me grab that. Now, now who one, is correct? this, Sally? This is uh, Ignaz Paderewski. Ah. who actually was uh, not only a pianist, but a politician. And this is, oh, really? <laughs> and he was, oh, he was one of the first Steinway artists who actually toured the United States. And this is a very, very, um, and you have to listen through the recording quality, but you can hear that this is a much sweeter hammer on this, on this piano. This is 1917. really see a set of hammers from those early Steinways. You, and and that, that was a Steinway, by the way. Um, he, you know, those were very, those lanolin-soaked, soft, creamy-colored hammers that had all kinds of trash in them because they didn't really comb out that well. I mean, that felt was, uh, it was not um, the, the pristine bleached 
um, felt that we think of today, you know, as, as being a more modern hammer. And of course, we've, we've reverted, we've gone back and we're going to hear some of that in, in just a minute. But that's really typical of that really round that was probably ironed in the treble a little bit. It predates the, the period in which Steinway started using a lot of lacquer. They were already using it by the 1880s. But um, to brighten up things, but it was much, much, it, the, the concentration was on having a really sweet kind of sound, that parlor kind of really sweet sound, even on the, on the concert bands. Okay, so the next one, the next one is Edwin Fisher. And this was, um, this was done in Germany in the 1930s, this first recording. And okay, so that's, Okay, Edwin Fisher should be the second one. Nope. Still Paderewski. Yeah. have already changed and by that point they were trying to get some more power out of the piano and this was pre-world war ii on all of these recordings except the very last one but that one was from 1933 and it's a very clean clear kind of sound but again they're really that's a european piano the paderewski piano was an american steinway this is a european steinway that is um, really clinging to that orchestral kind of tone because the, the tenor area was clearly um, much more mellow than the, the treble area. And when, you know, the early pianos, when they were really trying to get a lot of power out of the treble, they, they experimented a lot. I mean, today's concert grands are pretty much exactly what they had then, but they've, they've improved the ability for them to project. And so these were still pianos and you can hear in that instrument, that was probably one of the earlier instruments with the big cutoff bar, trying to get some more guts out of the, uh, you yeah. know, so that the energy didn't get sucked away um, from the board by um, the, the too much soundboard in the bass. Right. So, so the next one is Leon Fleischer from 1957. And by, by the 50s, um, you started to see in, in the United States a more, a more interest in like that homogeneous kind of voicing. And so here is a good example of the earlier, this is, you know, post-war, uh, more aggressive sound 
in, in a piano. So let's cue that one up a little bit. That's a huge leap. That's a big leap. That, that's a big leap. It's, yes. it's kind of an irritating tone to me. Well, and and believe me, it gets more irritating as it gets through the sixties and seventies. So that was that was sort of the embryonic stage of that aesthetic that really took over piano tone for the whole middle and late part of you know the twentieth century. So let's go to Horowitz. Now this one, this is the really aggressive sound. It, where was this recorded? This was Carnegie 1968. And this was actually really neat. And you can go back and listen to this whole thing. But this is an entire recital at Carnegie Hall by Horowitz. <clears throat> so you get a really, really good um, idea. You can listen to an hour of what that Horowitz piano sounded like. And yeah, I do. I've done the same thing with Horowitz in Moscow. Yeah, and, and that was the same piano. Yeah, it was. Probably 503, which was the same no question. piano. I, I, and I, I actually put my hands on that piano. And my God, I don't know how he got such delicate tone because I, I couldn't achieve that. Well, he got delicate tone because the only way what you could do with that hammer, it was so juiced up that the only thing you could do was sugar the sugar the hammers right before the concert. Just go with tiny, tiny, you know, two thousand of an inch needles pounded all over the strike point, and the let off being a thirty second of an inch, and that's how that's how he got it. And he got a string. He had a spring that was extremely, it was a light touch with a really, really strong spring. So listen to this and you'll see how aggressive that sound is. He takes his time getting out on the stage. Television. coming ladies and gentlemen Vladimir Horowitz
And, and you can go back and listen to the, some of the rest of these samples to see how really aggressive that was. And those hammers were lacquered. So, the, so at this point, the Europeans and the Americans were diverging in, in their tone quality. And it wasn't just Steinway, Hamburg Steinway, New York Steinway. It was all the Europeans and all the Americans. So the, yeah. the American pianos started out with a much softer hammer and juiced up. And the Europeans started out with a much harder hammer and voiced and needled it down to the roundness that they wanted. But they tended to be more clean. Now, if you listen, the next one is George Bullett. And um, this was 1988. And uh, this is a beautiful piano. I I'm pretty sure this is a Beckstein. He was at that time a Baldwin artist, but um, Baldwin bought, uh, bought Beckstein. Really? They, yeah, they owned them for years after World War II. They bought them. No idea. Yeah, they bought them um, after World War II um, to save them. And then basically the SD10, SF10, those were copies of the Baldwin EN, I mean, of the Beckstein EN. And in, in New York, where you had a lot of these uh, Baldwin artists, uh, most of them sort of uh, gravitated toward the Beckstein. So the Beckstein in theory and technically was a Baldwin. And in a lot of stages, you would see the Becksteins in New York instead of the Baldwin concert brands. And then once they developed, once they developed the um, SD10 and SF10, um, they, and, and in, the, in the early 60s and early 70s, I mean, late 60s, early 70s, they had a real shot at building a really fantastic piano. And then they had to start competing with the Japanese because Yamaha and Kawai started importing and so they decided, they made the decision to compete on price and not on quality. And so they, they decided that the volume was on price sales. And so they sort of devalued those, um, those um, SD um, and SF10s. So they didn't really have the quality that they did, but the early ones were quite nice. But this was a Beckstein. And it's a really, really sweet piano. And um, it sort of exemplifies that European, very orchestral kind of sound. But it was also the point at which the, the German started perfecting the really, really minutia of fitting hammers to strings and filing to fit and making things really, really clean. And so this is a great example of that kind of sound.
my favorite tone of the uh I'd like okay. to point out though, if you listen to the way he was pedaling, he was half pedaling or quarter pedaling the entire piece. He never dropped those dampers. And the reason they didn't is because those pianos still had agraphs all the way up. They didn't have the tension that even the Baldwin or the Steinway had at that point. They, because they were using a brass agraph all the way up to, the, to 88. And because of that, they didn't have the, the, the big penetrating kind of sound out of the treble. It was a very beautiful sound, but it was very small sound. And those pianos, the trebles didn't sound very good. If you just played a few treble notes, they were really thin and, and sort of weak. But if you kept the whole board going, you could get that kind of sound out of it. And so those European pianists, pianists who played those pianos learned how to keep, give the illusion of the sustain by quarter pedaling and half pedaling through an entire piece and never letting, letting the dampers hit all the strings at one time. So wow. it was really interesting. His technique combined with the kind of voicing they did was a beautiful, beautiful sound. Yeah. So the next one is Mark Arterich, and this goes back to um, 1977. Um, this is still that uh, another example of that Germanic kind of orchestral voicing, uh, and this this was um, you know all of these companies had a tough time coming out of the war and getting their, a lot of their, their Hamill people died off. They lost all these sources. This was in 77 when they were still struggling with trying to get Hammerfeld. So it's an interesting voicing that they did because they were voicing around problems that they had with the hammer. So try this. And is this an American piano? No, no, it's a German Steinway. German Steinway. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was still at the point where um, Europe was still recovering fit in, in terms of their ability to get Hammerfeld. Um, so this was a much harder hammer that was needled to where it was supposed to be, but it still had, and she's great, she's a fantastic pianist, but you can still hear the problems because the dynamic range is, yeah. is, is shortened and, and, and narrowed because of the hammer issue. So you can hear that. This one starts a little bit abruptly, loudness.
so wow. those, those were the hammers that we ended up having to squeeze with pliers to yeah. try to get them to come down. Well, the trouble on that recording is just terrible. Well, it the piano was fine. It was the hammer that was really um, um, really um, at fault there. And yeah. that was that was they were using a short grained felt that was not what we're looking for in hammer in, in, in the hammer of, of the hammer that we really love the sound of is a long fiber or curlier fiber, something that really throws the string into motion. And those were those hard German hammers from the 70s that just basically went up instead of going up, throwing the string into motion, and you hear that strong fundamental, it smacked, you got that huge impact sound and that second harmonic right away. So you didn't really hear the fundamental in any of that. And when you had to push it, if you're in a concert and you've got to push it to try to get that sound out to the end of the hall, it, it was really tough. And those that they made by 83 and 84, even five years later, when we heard that George Ballette recording, they had started to try to get back the felt quality that they had pre-war you know, which was so voiceable. And so many of the voicing techniques that they had, the arsenal of voicing techniques that they had at the time just did not work on those, on those German hammers like that. And so I remember putting, you know, sets of those things on and we were, you know, it was nothing for us to do 60 needle strokes in either, either shoulder, try to get it soft. But they had a very narrow dynamic range. So if you, if you hit them enough to sort of take the edge off, they died. And so there, and, and there are still German hammers out there that are they're like that because they don't use the length of fiber. And, and some of the manufacturers that I've worked for um, do specify in their hammer felt the curliness, the length of fiber. They only use the belly hair of the sheep. They won't use the back hair or the, you know, down uh, the legs or anything because it's too coarse. And so in, until the hammer makers got, again, the ability to get that better felt, the, the quality of the tone really suffered. Now, this, the next one is uh, Murray Pariah. And there should be one from the, there's actually one from the 70s. What's the next Murray Pariah one you have? Yeah, that's it. That was a really famous recording in the 70s. I bought that recording probably in 71, 72. So the date that it, that it says it was released is wrong because that's a really early Murray Pariah. And that was, you know, that was at the point where they were starting to say, we got to do something about these hammers. So listen to this. And this is a really good, that's a really good example.
So you heard on that last passage, oh, you heard how he he's a good enough pianist and the let off was close enough on that piano that he could control the sound and get a different voice out of that. But again, those are the really, really tough ones. Now, the last one is 2010. Um, recording of Murray Pryor on a, um, it also, um, you know, a, a brand new piano. And the, we are, the pendulum started swinging back toward the kind of sound that we have right now in 2020, um, in the early 2000s. So we've had about 20 years of this swinging back in this direction. This is from 2010. And that is that there's much more color in the sound, way bigger dynamic range because the hammer allows that. So instead of having that really aggressive sound, that was a bright piano, but it also had color so that the, the, the lower dynamic ranges still had a lot of brightness and the upper ranges were really easy to get sort of an aggressive kind of sound, but it, it, it lacked the metallic quality of the, the 70s and 80s. Like an order of magnitude, more, more, more body perception of fundamental. Right. And so when, when I was, one of, the, one of the fellows at Beckstein that I worked with a lot was Werner Albrecht. And Werner um, is now the head of the Beckstein factory. But he, you know, I remember working with him for a number of years when I worked for Beckstein. And he, I, I said, you know, Werner, you have ironing and needling and, and juicing and you have, you know, all of these, fitting the hammers, you have all these techniques, reshaping. You know, I said, you know, what, how do you decide what to, where to start? You know, what do you, what, what goes through your mind when you go, I have to do this? And he said, well, if you do something and it doesn't work, you've done the wrong thing, which is sadly is the real truth about voicing is that there is no right way to do it. It's experimenting very gingerly with things until you find a path to the tonal goal that you have in your head. And the old Steinway guys used to talk about having a sound in your ear. 
and and um, they they had a, a sound that that was their tonal goal that they were aiming towards, and they learned it from the guy who trained them in the factory and from the guy who trained them in the factory, and so that it would go back generations of that that tone that they're they were looking for because it, it really you go to the Steinway factory today and these. Uh, the voicers are not trained musicians. I mean, very few of them hardly play. They've just been taught to do what they do by listening and duplicating what, they, what they're listening to. So it means that, that, you know, you've got to find your way. You've got to have that tonal aesthetic. You've got to listen to a lot of really fine pianos in really, really good condition. And, and, and tell yourself that you can do better, you can clean it up. Like that first recording, you know, that I had, that that was my tuning and my, you know, my preparation of that piano. I spent a month on that piano wow. before, that, before that concert because it, it had so many things that were a mess about it. One, and I'm living in Georgia and one of the days I, I threatened to write a book called Hamburgs in Georgia because what happened here is that the is so great in these halls and you've got these waterlogged kind of hammers. And so a lot of times with uh, pianos down here, the, the easiest way to bring everything up is just to iron. And, um, you know, they'll tell you like at the Steinway factory guys, well, we don't iron much in, in New York because it doesn't last. Well, that's the beauty of ironing. It doesn't last. And so you can do stuff at a concert. You can gang iron with a with a, a, a steam iron with the steam turned off, gang iron with aluminum foil turned over the over the hammers, up the shoulders, all the way to the strike point, but not over the strike point, and bring hammers up in a matter of minutes that would have taken a long time to, to voice up with lacquer. And so, you know, and this is great because the next person, you know, it may gradually lose that brightness, but in a, in a hall that they have some temperature and humidity control, that ironing will actually hold up for a long time. And I, I, a lot of times I iron to fit, you know, so the first thing I'll do is, is travel and burn and get the hammers as square as possible level all the strings up and then start your voicing at the top of the hammer. So that's sort of my go-to procedure of trying to get it, but it has to be, has to be regulated within an inch of its life or it won't work. And if the hammer isn't traveled well, what happens is that it goes up to the string and hits at a glancing blow if it's not, if it's traveling and you'll never get the cleanliness of the sound unless that's really, really done perfectly. It has to hit it squarely and it cannot go off at a, at a side, to the side at all. And so the tiniest amount of travel will wreck the sound, wreck the sound of that. And, and the other thing is that the let off, for concert work, the let off has to be a whisper away. It has to be really, really tight. And you may have to go back and if you're maintaining a concert grand in a hall, you may have to go back and check that let off almost before every concert um, to make sure that it is really close enough and also so that it is um, it is so that the lower dynamic can be had 
at, with very little effort from the pianist. And my, my test is I, I push the, the, the key down right to let off till I start to feel that tender hit the let off button and then quietly without making any noise and then push it. And if I can't get a sound like that, then that let off is not close enough. That's then, amazing. That's the way I set let off. Yeah, and you can set let off like that and you can also, um, you know, and then what I do is the, in the opposite is I go through, I press the pedal play a note and then play it softly to see if it if it blocks. And so you play the note once, get it ringing, hold that damper up and then play it again. And if you hear, whoop, you know that let off is a little bit too close. Yep. Sometimes it, it is just the fiber on the top of the hammer that's making that noise. And you can go back and iron over that a little bit um, and get it. I do, I do um, file to to clean up the sound. Um, but I tend to try to file just on the front and the back side of the hammer and not touch the strike point at all. And that gives me, that permanently lets those hammers be fitted. Now, heavily lacquered hammers will unfit themselves because as they hit the string, they will hit a little bit of lacquer that's harder under one string than the other and then it prevents the other part of the hammer from touching the string. So as the hammers wear in, you've got to do individual needling on each string to match the other strings. And that will get you that will get you um, really, really well fitted. And if you listen um, that first sample, that cleanliness that I got was, hours of fitting on those strings. So, so um, before, we, before we go on, I, I wanna refer back to something. You talked about the old Steinway guys talking about it like I have, we have the sound in our ears. We have a sound in our ears. What I've called that for years is developing a tonal memory. And right. I don't think you can really voice until you have a clear, you know, like oral perception, like a tonal memory, <clears throat> what a great recording piano sounds like. Right, and, then, and that's one of the reasons that listening to good recordings with good headphones is one of the things technicians need to do all the time to, to, keep, their, to keep themselves sharp and to keep their perception of the tone sharp. Every single recording I've done, I can go back and listen and say, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. Yeah. You can always find something else to do. You can find something else to do the very next day after you just did everything the day before. And, and it is just the fact of life with, with um, hammers. But the other thing I want to caution you about reshaping is that you have to be really careful. You wanna block all the hammers up at the same time when you're reshaping so that you're really careful not to go over that strike point. And I count my strokes of, 
uh, uh, with the sandpaper on both sides of the hammer. And I try to keep that pressure even because the one thing that you've got to be careful about is when you've got all those hammers blocked up, the tails, I use a big long piece of old balance rail that I got from one of the factories and I, it is very straight and I put it under all the hammer tails. And so when I'm filing, I can really look at the, the level of those to make sure they're straight and also to make sure I'm not taking more off one hammer than the other. If you take more hammer off of one hammer than the other side by side and you say, oh, I'll just raise the capstan to make that one the same height, you have ruined the regulation on that piano. It will never ever feel even again after you've done that because you'll have more aftertouch on that hammer. And I've had technicians ask, well, why is there more aftertouch on one one note than the other because I've got the dip set in the same and all that is because that hammer has been brought up and that shank is slightly higher than the one next to it or slightly lower than the one next to it. Uh, your business is called Piano Perfect LLC. I have discovered this as, as I continue to work with you. <laughs> what was that, David? Um, any questions or any feedback that anybody has? We're yeah, we have some questions. Um, I can go back for, from email. We'll see what we can squeeze in here. We've got about five minutes left. Thanks, everyone, for showing up, by the way. We'll be wrapping up here in about five minutes. Uh, we'll send feedback links and uh, a link if you, if you want to access uh, the recording of this uh, and recordings of all our past episodes for, by supporting for just $8 a month. We'll send a link for that. But here's a question, uh, a question for Sally from Tim Fleming of Milwaukee. Uh, do you ever voice by inserting needles in the side of the hammer? And is there a specific condition of the hammer when using side needling that works best? I rarely do that. I would say that that is a very unusual thing for me to do. I tend to go in the face of the hammer. Um, sometimes when you're voicing a piano that is the hammers really don't have the, the fibers aren't moving around the molding enough. Um, I will do side needling really close to the molding to free that hammer up a little bit from, from the 10 to two that we always talk about in voicing um, right around that molding. If you just don't have enough pop out of the hammer, that will help a little bit. But on a good set of hammers, you usually don't have that. Usually that's because they, they, they've gotten too much glue up into the top of the molding. There should be no glue under there. It should be just down below. And so that usually will loosen that up a little bit. Okay. From Yi Zhang. And he said, the felt doesn't completely clear the sound after the damper is done. This is from a previous recording. Um, I understand the felt has to be set perfectly on top of the string to make sure it mutes the sound properly. I have a 1960 Steinway B. I had recently replaced all the damper felts to brand new Steinway ones, and about four notes are still having the same issues. It took three technicians for over 20 plus hours, and only two notes are fixed. Are setting the dampers a really tricky job? <laughs> I it guess that's like a yes or no question. Not be. It should not be. But what he's saying, what is he's got bleed through? Is it? Yeah, I guess so. What section? Yeah, it doesn't. Um, I'm not it, sure we'll get the specific details, but he does say it's it was like three or four ultimately, and then two. So it's not a ton. 
um, that he couldn't just get, get right? Is there something that happens at specific sections? Yes, because in the, in the trichord uh, section, it's really different than the bichord. Because in the trichords, a lot of times, um, I, you know, there are a lot of tricks that you can use. You can squeeze the felt to make it go down a little bit. Sometimes you've got to clip the, the felt out from underneath. Maybe they're actually too long and they're dragging going in and out. And, then, and so when they're dragging going in and out, they can get sort of twisted and it takes the damper a little bit of time to find its way back in and you need to trim to do and that. And that's like, like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes you can take a burning knife, a hot burning knife, lift the damper and just drag that burning knife across the side of the damper. That'll make it a little bit cleaner going back in. And sometimes when it's one of those, it just seems to be hanging up. Sometimes you can take um, a, a cord and I, it's not a thread just isn't deep enough, uh, isn't thick enough, but a, a small cord that's maybe, you know, a, a less than half a millimeter and work it up into um, a tricord damper and it'll, it'll push the sides out a little bit. I mean, that's a trick that you can use. You can needle into them. You can needle into the sides of them and, and get them to damp a little bit more and puff it out a little bit. Um, so there's tons of stuff you can do, and it depends, you know, at the, sometimes the bicords are, to me, the worst, especially if they're twisting when they're coming up out of the damp, out of the string. So you, in a lot of cases, you really want to go ahead and crank down and tighten that, that uh, screw and, and make that wire as firmly as you can into that damper into the top part of the damper lever, and then take a take a um, some pliers and just go in, and you want to grab the damper at the top of the lever with uh, some duckbill pliers, and then take some pliers that have a, a little bit of grip on them, and actually twist the wire. But you do that after you've already tightened the wire in the flange, because if you don't do that. Every single time you go back to tighten it, it's going to move back to the old place where it was. So you actually have to twist it in place afterwards. Right. So that's all I can do without hearing it. Wow. Anything else? We're, uh, we're at we're the just... end of the trail. Okay. At the end of the trail. Man, I... this was, if... I, I, I can't imagine that anybody wouldn't feel that this hour was a massive value in their lives. Thank you, Sally. Well, thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. And, uh, and uh, yeah, just continuing on this theme, I think it, I see a lot of people. Oh, we, we're getting applause. <laughs> we're getting applause in the video. So that's amazing. Look at that, Sally. Appreciate that, folks. People are clapping for you, girl. And thanks to Ethan and David. And thank you for your whole team for doing this because I think this is really valuable. And it's so much easier to do this than it is to um, have to travel somewhere to work. That's right. Get everybody in a room together. This is great. Sure. Um, I'll just uh, I'll just remind everybody. Uh, we put a feedback link. Uh, we'll put a link if you want to sign up for our um, 
$8 a month, support us for $8 a month, and you can have easy access to all these recordings uh, behind the scenes, and along with cool extras like, <clears throat> like those YouTube links that we shared with you guys today in the playlist. And uh, yeah, we appreciate your support. I see people working while we're doing this today, so you can have a chance to go back over it and, and uh, focus, focus on everything <laughs> even deep, more deeply. <laughs> so okay um daniel make sure you don't sign us all off uh because i know you're the host right now but uh but yeah we're about ready to sign off i'll i'll kick us off facebook and youtube uh, i'll just thank uh people who've been working on this behind the scenes we have uh puja we have mikolai we have tall we have ian we have daniel we have pat we have sarah and of course david brings his magic um and uh and and we appreciate him being the rock star of the piano industry that he is <laughs> and, and bringing us his great energy and Sal sally thank you for being as perfect as you are <laughs> okay i'll start to i'll start to to unload the the event goodbye everyone bye bye next week kids see you thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time Remember that you can catch us live online every Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. That's right. Go to pianotechradio.com to register so you can interact live and ask questions of our guests. See you next week.